First Scene, Chapter 13 of No Name. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Lee Paquette. No Name by Wilkie Collins. First Scene, Chapter 13. The fortune which Mr. Vanstone possessed when you knew him, the lawyer began, was part and part only of the inheritance which fell to him on his father's death. Mr. Vanstone the elder was a manufacturer in the north of England. He married early in life, and the children of the marriage were either six or seven in number, I am not certain which. First Michael, the eldest son, still living, and now an old man turned seventy. Secondly, Selina, the eldest daughter, who married an afterlife, and who died ten or eleven years ago. After those two came other sons and daughters, whose early deaths make it unnecessary to mention them particularly. The last, and by many years the youngest of the children, was Andrew, whom I first knew, as I told you, at the age of nineteen. My father was then on the point of retiring from the active pursuit of his profession, and in succeeding to his business i also succeeded to his connection with the vanstones as the family solicitor at that time andrew had just started in life by entering the army after little more than a year of home service he was ordered out with his regiment to canada when he quitted england he left his father and his elder brother michael seriously at variance i need not detain you by entering into the cause of the quarrel I need only tell you that the elder Mr. Vanstone, with many excellent qualities, was a man of fierce and intractable temper. His eldest son had set him at defiance, under circumstances which might have justly irritated a father of far milder character, and he declared, in the most positive terms, that he would never see Michael's face again. In defiance of my entreaties, and of the entreaties of his wife, he tore up, in our presence, the will which provided for Michael's share in the paternal inheritance. Such was the family position when the younger son left home for Canada. Some months after Andrew's arrival with his regiment at Quebec, he became acquainted with a woman of great personal attractions, who came, or said she came, from one of the southern states of America. She obtained an immediate influence over him, and she used it to the basest purpose. You knew the easy, affectionate, trusting nature of the man in later life. You can imagine how thoughtlessly he acted on the impulse of his youth. It is useless to dwell on this lamentable part of the story. He was just twenty-one. He was blindly devoted to a worthless woman, and she led him on, with merciless cunning, till it was too late to draw back. In one word, he committed the fatal error of his life. He married her. She had been wise enough in her own interests to dread the influence of his brother officers, and to persuade him, up to the period of the marriage ceremony, to keep the proposed union between them a secret. She could do this, but she could not provide against the results of accident. Hardly three months had passed, when a chance disclosure exposed the life she had led before her marriage. But one alternative was left to her husband, 
the alternative of instantly separating from her. The effect of the discovery on the unhappy boy, for a boy in disposition he still was, may be judged by the event which followed the exposure. One of Andrew's superior officers, a certain Major Kirk, if I remember right, found him in his quarters, writing to his father a confession of the disgraceful truth, with a loaded pistol by his side. That officer saved the lad's life from his own hand, and hushed up the scandalous affair by a compromise. The marriage being a perfectly legal one, and the wife's misconduct prior to the ceremony giving her husband no claim to his release from her by divorce, it was only possible to appeal to her sense of her own interests. A handsome annual allowance was secured to her, on condition that she returned to the place from which she had come, that she never appeared in England, and that she ceased to use her husband's name. Other stipulations were added to these. She accepted them all, and measures were privately taken to have her well looked after in the place of her retreat. What life she led there, and whether she performed all the conditions imposed on her, I cannot say. I can only tell you that she never, to my knowledge, came to England, that she never annoyed Mr. Vanstone, and that the annual allowance was paid her, through a local agent in America, to the day of her death. All that she wanted in marrying him was money, and money she got. In the meantime, Andrew had left the regiment. Nothing would induce him to face his brother officers after what had happened. He sold out and returned to England. The first intelligence which reached him on his return was the intelligence of his father's death. He came to my office in London before going home, and there learned from my lips how the family quarrel had ended. The will which Mr. Vanstone the Elder had destroyed in my presence had not been, so far as I know, replaced by another. When I was sent for, in the usual course on his death, I fully expected that the law would be left to make the customary division among his widow and his children. To my surprise, a will appeared among his papers, correctly drawn and executed, and dated about a week after the period when the first will had been destroyed. He had maintained his vindictive purpose against his eldest son, and had applied to a stranger for the professional assistance which I honestly believe he was ashamed to ask for at my hands. It is needless to trouble you with the provisions of the will in detail. There were the widow and three surviving children to be provided for. The widow received a life interest only in a portion of the testator's property. The remaining portion was divided between Andrew and Selina, two-thirds to the brother, one-third to the sister. On the mother's death, the money from which her income had been derived was to go to Andrew and Selina in the same relative proportions as before, five thousand pounds having been first deducted from the sum and paid to Michael, as the sole legacy left by the implacable father to his eldest son. Speaking in round numbers, the division of property, as settled by the will, stood thus. Before the mother's death, Andrew had seventy thousand pounds, Selina had thirty-five thousand pounds, Michael had nothing. After the mother's death, Michael had five thousand pounds, to set against Andrew's inheritance, augmented to one hundred thousand, 
and Selina's inheritance increased to fifty thousand. Do not suppose that I am dwelling unnecessarily on this part of the subject. Every word I now speak bears on interests still in suspense, which vitally concern Mr. Vanstone's daughters. As we get on from past to present, keep in mind the terrible inequality of Michael's inheritance and Andrew's inheritance. The harm done by that vindictive will is, I greatly fear, not over yet. Andrew's first impulse, when he heard the news which I had to tell him, was worthy of the open, generous nature of the man. He at once proposed to divide his inheritance with his elder brother. But there was one serious obstacle in the way. A letter from Michael was waiting for him at my office when he came there, and that letter charged him with being the original cause of estrangement between his father and his elder brother. The efforts which he had made, bluntly and incautiously I own, but with the purest and kindest intentions as I know, to compose the quarrel before leaving home, were perverted, by the vilest misconstruction, to support an accusation of treachery and falsehood, which would have stung any man to the quick. Andrew felt, what I felt, that if these imputations were not withdrawn before his generous intentions toward his brother took effect, the mere fact of their execution would amount to a practical acknowledgment of the justice of Michael's charge against him. He wrote to his brother in the most forbearing terms. The answer received was as offensive as words could make it. Michael had inherited his father's temper, unredeemed by his father's better qualities. His second letter reiterated the charges contained in the first and declared that he would only accept the offered division as an act of atonement and restitution on Andrew's part. I next wrote to the mother to use her influence. She was herself aggrieved at being left with nothing more than a life interest in her husband's property. She sided resolutely with Michael, and she stigmatized Andrew's proposal as an attempt to bribe her eldest son into withdrawing a charge against his brother which that brother knew to be true. After this last repulse, nothing more could be done. Michael withdrew to the continent, and his mother followed him there. She lived long enough and saved money enough out of her income to add considerably at her death to her elder son's five thousand pounds. He had previously still further improved his pecuniary position by an advantageous marriage and he is now passing the close of his days either in France or Switzerland, a widower with one son. We shall return to him shortly. In the meantime, I need only tell you that Andrew and Michael never again met, never again communicated, even by writing. To all intents and purposes they were dead to each other, from those early days to the present time. You can now estimate what Andrew's position was when he left his profession and returned to England. Possessed of a fortune, he was alone in the world, his future destroyed at the fair outset of life, his mother and brother estranged from him, his sister lately married with interests and hopes in which he had no share. Men of firmer mental caliber might have found refuge from such a situation as this in an absorbing intellectual pursuit. He was not capable of the effort. All the strength of his character lay in the affections he had wasted. 
his place in the world was that quiet place at home with wife and children to make his life happy which he had lost for ever to look back was more than he dare to look forward was more than he could in sheer despair he let his own impetuous youth drive him on and cast himself into the lowest dissipations of a london life a woman's falsehood had driven him to his ruin a woman's love saved him at the outset of his downward career let us not speak of her harshly for we laid her with him yesterday in the grave you who only knew mrs vanstone in later life when illness and sorrow and secret care had altered and saddened her can form no adequate idea of her attractions of person and character when she was a girl of seventeen i was with andrew when he first met her i had tried to rescue him for one night at least from degrading associates and degrading pleasures by persuading him to go with me to a ball given by one of the great city companies there they met she produced a strong impression on him the moment he saw her to me as to him she was a total stranger an introduction to her obtained in the customary manner informed him that she was the daughter of one mr blake the rest he discovered from herself they were partners in the dance unobserved in that crowded ballroom all through the evening circumstances were against her from the first she was unhappy at home her family and friends occupied no recognized station in life they were mean underhand people in every way unworthy of her it was her first ball it was the first time she had ever met with a man who had the breeding the manners and the conversation of a gentleman are these excuses for her which i have no right to make if we have any human feeling for human weakness surely not the meeting of that night decided their future when other meetings had followed when the confession of her love had escaped her he took the one course of all others took it innocently and unconsciously which was most dangerous to them both his frankness and his sense of honor forbade him to deceive her he opened his heart and told her the truth she was a generous impulsive girl she had no home ties strong enough to plead with her she was passionately fond of him and he had made that appeal to her pity which to the eternal honor of women is the hardest of all appeals for them to resist she saw and saw truly that she alone stood between him and his ruin the last chance of his rescue hung on her decision she decided and saved him let me not be misunderstood let me not be accused of trifling with the serious social question on which my narrative forces me to touch i will defend her memory by no false reasoning i will only speak the truth it is the truth that she snatched him from mad excesses which must have ended in his early death it is the truth that she restored him to that happy home existence which you remember so tenderly which he remembered so gratefully that on the day when he was free he made her his wife let strict morality claim its right and condemn her early fault 
I have read my New Testament to little purpose indeed, if Christian mercy may not soften the hard sentence against her, if Christian charity may not find a plea for her memory in the love and fidelity, the suffering and the sacrifice of her whole life. A few words more will bring us to a later time, and to events which have happened within your own experience. I need not remind you that the position in which Mr. Vanstone was now placed could lead in the end to but one result, to a disclosure more or less inevitable of the truth. Attempts were made to keep the hopeless misfortune of his life a secret from Miss Blake's family, and as a matter of course those attempts failed before the relentless scrutiny of her father and her friends. What might have happened if her relatives had been what is termed respectable? I cannot pretend to say. As it was, they were people who could, in the common phrase, be conveniently treated with. The only survivor of the family at the present time is a scoundrel calling himself Captain Rag. When I tell you that he privately extorted the price of his silence from Mrs. Vanstone to the last, and when I add that his conduct presents no extraordinary exception to the conduct in their lifetime, of the other relatives, you will understand what sort of people I had to deal with in my client's interests, and how their assumed indignation was appeased. Having, in the first instance, left England for Ireland, Mr. Vanstone and Miss Blake remained there afterward for some years. Girl as she was, she faced her position and its necessities without flinching. Having once resolved to sacrifice her life to the man she loved, having quieted her conscience by persuading herself that his marriage was a legal mockery, and that she was his wife in the sight of heaven, she set herself from the first to accomplish the one foremost purpose of so living with him, in the world's eye, as never to raise the suspicion that she was not his lawful wife. The women are few indeed who cannot resolve firmly, scheme patiently, and act promptly where the dearest interests of their lives are concerned. Mrs. Vanstone, she has a right now, remember to that name. Mrs. Vanstone had more than the average share of a woman's tenacity and a woman's tact, and she took all the needful precautions in those early days which her husband's less ready capacity had not the art to devise, precautions to which they were largely indebted for the preservation of their secret in later times. Thanks to these safeguards, not a shadow of suspicion followed them when they returned to England. They first settled in Devonshire, merely because they were far removed there from that northern county in which Mr. Vanstone's family and connections had been known. On the part of his surviving relatives, they had no curious investigations to dread. He was totally estranged from his mother and his elder brother. His married sister had been forbidden by her husband, who was a clergyman, to hold any communication with him, from the period when he had fallen into the deplorable way of life which I have described as following his return from Canada. Other relations he had none. When he and Miss Blake left Devonshire, their next change of residence was to this house. Neither courting nor avoiding notice, simply happy in themselves, in their children, and in their quiet rural life, 
unsuspected by the few neighbors who formed their modest circle of acquaintance to be other than what they seemed the truth in their case as in the cases of many others remained undiscovered until accident forced it into the light of day if in your close intimacy with them it seems strange that they should never have betrayed themselves let me ask you to consider the circumstances and you will understand the apparent anomaly remember that they had been living as husband and wife to all intents and purposes except that the marriage service had not been read over them for fifteen years before you came into the house and bear in mind at the same time that no event occurred to disturb mr vanstone's happiness in the present to remind him of the past or to warn him of the future until the announcement of his wife's death reached him in that letter from america which you saw placed in his hand from that day forth when a past which he abhorred was forced back to his memory when a future which she had never dared to anticipate was placed within her reach you will soon perceive if you have not perceived already that they both betrayed themselves time after time and that your innocence of all suspicion and their children's innocence of all suspicion alone prevented you from discovering the truth the sad story of the past is now as well known to you as to me i have had hard words to speak god knows i have spoken them with true sympathy for the living with true tenderness for the memory of the dead he paused turned his face a little away and rested his head on his hand in the quiet and demonstrative manner which was natural to him thus far miss garth had only interrupted his narrative by an occasional word or by a mute token of her attention she made no effort to conceal her tears they fell fast and silently over her wasted cheeks as she looked up and spoke to him i have done you some injury sir in my thoughts she said with a noble simplicity i know you better now let me ask your forgiveness let me take your hand those words and the action which accompanied them touched him deeply he took her hand in silence she was the first to speak the first to set the example of self-control it is one of the noble instincts of women that nothing more powerfully rouses them to struggle with their own sorrow than the sight of a man's distress she quietly dried her tears she quietly drew her chair round the table so as to sit nearer to him when she spoke again i have been sadly broken mr pendril by what has happened in this house she said or i should have borne what you have told me better than i have borne it to-day will you let me ask one question before you go on my heart aches for the children of my love more than ever my children now is there no hope for their future are they left with no prospect but poverty before them the lawyer hesitated before he answered the question they are left dependent he said at last on the justice and the mercy of a stranger through the misfortune of their birth through the misfortunes which have followed the marriage of their parents with that startling answer he rose took up the will from the floor and restored it to its former position on the table between them 
I can only place the truth before you, he resumed, in one plain form of words. The marriage has destroyed this will, and has left Mr. Vanstone's daughters dependent on their uncle. As he spoke, the breeze stirred again among the shrubs under the window. On their uncle, repeated Miss Garth. She considered for a moment, and laid her hand suddenly on Mr. Pendril's arm. Not on Michael Vanstone. Yes, on Michael Vanstone. Miss Garth's hand still mechanically grasped the lawyer's arm. Her whole mind was absorbed in the effort to realize the discovery which had now burst on her. "'Dependent on Michael Vanstone,' she said to herself. "'Dependent on their father's bitterest enemy. How can it be?' "'Give me your attention for a few minutes more,' said Mr. Pendril, "'and you shall hear. The sooner we can bring this painful interview to a close, the sooner I can open communications with Mr. Michael Vanstone, and the sooner you will know what he decides on doing for his brother's orphan daughters. I repeat to you that they are absolutely dependent on him. You will most readily understand how and why, if we take up the chain of events where we last left it, at the period of Mr. and Mrs. Vanstone's marriage. One moment, sir, said Miss Garth. Were you in the secret of that marriage at the time when it took place? Unhappily, I was not. I was away from London, away from England at the time. If Mr. Vanstone had been able to communicate with me when the letter from America announced the death of his wife, the fortunes of his daughters would not have been now at stake. He paused, and before proceeding further, looked once more at the letters which he had consulted at an earlier period of the interview. He took one letter from the rest, and put it on the table by his side. At the beginning of the present year, he resumed, a very serious business necessity, in connection with some West Indian property possessed by an old client and friend of mine, required the presence either of myself or of one of my two partners in Jamaica. One of the two could not be spared. The other was not in health to undertake the voyage. There was no choice left but for me to go. I wrote to Mr. Vanstone, telling him that I should leave England at the end of February, and that the nature of the business which took me away afforded little hope of my getting back from the West Indies before June. My letter was not written with any special motive. I merely thought it right, seeing that my partners were not admitted to my knowledge of Mr. Vanstone's private affairs, to warn him of my absence, as a measure of formal precaution which it was right to take. At the end of February I left England, without having heard from him. I was on the sea when the news of his wife's death reached him, on the 4th of March, and I did not return until the middle of last June. "'You warned him of your departure,' interposed Miss Garth. "'Did you not warn him of your return?' "'Not personally. My head clerk sent him one of the circulars which were dispatched from my office in various directions to announce my return.' It was the first substitute I thought of for the personal letter which the pressure of innumerable occupations, all crowding on me together after my long absence, did not allow me leisure to write. Barely a month later, the first information of his marriage reached me in a letter from himself, written on the day of the fatal accident. The circumstances which induced him to write arose out of an event in which you must have taken some interest. 
I mean the attachment between Mr. Clare's son and Mr. Vanstone's youngest daughter. I cannot say that I was favorably disposed toward that attachment at the time, replied Miss Garth. I was ignorant then of the family secret. I know better now. Exactly. The motive which you can now appreciate is the motive that leads us to the point. The young lady herself, as I have heard from the elder Mr. Clare, to whom I am indebted for my knowledge of the circumstances in detail, confessed her attachment to her father, and innocently touched him to the quick by a chance reference to his own early life. He had a long conversation with Mrs. Vanstone, at which they both agreed that Mr. Clare must be privately informed of the truth, before the attachment between the two young people was allowed to proceed further. It was painful in the last degree, both to husband and wife, to be reduced to this alternative. But they were resolute, honorably resolute, in making the sacrifice of their own feelings, and Mr. Vanstone betook himself on the spot to Mr. Clare's cottage. You no doubt observed a remarkable change in Mr. Vanstone's manner on that day, and you can now account for it. Miss Garth bowed her head, and Mr. Pendrell went on. You are sufficiently acquainted with Mr. Clare's contempt for all social prejudices, he continued, to anticipate his reception of the confession which his neighbor addressed to him. Five minutes after the interview had begun, the two old friends were as easy and unrestrained together as usual. In the course of conversation, Mr. Vanstone mentioned the pecuniary arrangement which he had made for the benefit of his daughter and of her future husband and in doing so he naturally referred to his will here on the table between us mr clare remembering that his friend had been married in the march of that year at once asked when the will had been executed receiving the reply that it had been made five years since and thereupon astounded mr vanstone by telling him bluntly that the document was waste paper in the eye of the law up to that moment he like many other persons had been absolutely ignorant that a man's marriage is legally as well as socially considered to be the most important event in his life that it destroys the validity of any will which he may have made as a single man and that it renders absolutely necessary the entire reassertion of his testamentary intentions in the character of a husband the statement of this plain fact appeared to overwhelm Mr. Vanstone, declaring that his friend had laid him under an obligation which he should remember to his dying day. He at once left the cottage, at once returned home, and wrote me this letter. He handed the letter open to Miss Garth. In tearless, speechless grief, she read these words. My dear Pendril, since we last wrote to each other, an extraordinary change has taken place in my life. About a week after you went away, I received news from America which told me that I was free. Need I say what use I made of that freedom? Need I say that the mother of my children is now my wife? If you are surprised at not having heard from me the moment you got back, attribute my silence in great part, if not altogether, to my own total ignorance of the legal necessity for making another will. Not half an hour since, I was enlightened for the first time, under circumstances which I will mention when we meet, by my old friend Mr. Clare. 
family anxieties have had something to do with my silence as well my wife's confinement is close at hand and besides the serious anxiety my second daughter is just engaged to be married until i saw mr clare to-day these matters so filled my mind that i never thought of writing to you during the one short month which is all that has passed since i got news of your return now i know that my will must be made again i write instantly for god's sake come on the day when you receive this come and relieve me from the dreadful thought that my two darling girls are at this moment unprovided for if anything happened to me and if my desire to do their mother justice ended through my miserable ignorance of the law in leaving nora and magdalen disinherited i should not rest in my grave come at any cost to yours ever a v on the saturday morning mr pendrell resumed those lines reached me i instantly set aside all other business and drove to the railway at the london terminus i heard the first news of the friday's accident heard it with conflicting accounts of the numbers and names of the passengers killed at bristol they were better informed and the dreadful truth about mr vanstone was confirmed i had time to recover myself before i reached your station here and found mr clare's son waiting for me he took me to his father's cottage and there without losing a moment i drew out mrs vanstone's will my object was to secure the only provision for her daughters which it was now possible to make mr vanstone having died intestate a third of his fortune would go to his widow and the rest would be divided among his next of kin as children born out of wedlock mr vanstone's daughters under the circumstances of their father's death had no more claim to a share in his property than the daughters of one of his laborers in the village the one chance left was that their mother might sufficiently recover to leave her third share to them by will in the event of her decease now you know why i wrote to you to ask for that interview why i waited day and night in the hope of receiving a summons to the house i was sincerely sorry to send back such an answer to your note of inquiry as i was compelled to write but while there was a chance of the preservation of mrs vanstone's life the secret of the marriage was hers not mine and every consideration of delicacy forbade me to disclose it you did right sir said miss garth i understand your motives and respect them my last attempt to provide for the daughters continued mr pendrell was as you know rendered unavailing by the dangerous nature of mrs vanstone's illness her death left the infant who survived her by a few hours the infant born you will remember in lawful wedlock possessed in due legal course of the whole of mr vanstone's fortune on the child's death if it had only outlived the mother by a few seconds instead of a few hours the result would have been the same the next of kin to the legitimate offspring took the money and that next of kin is the infant's paternal uncle michael vanstone the whole fortune of eighty thousand pounds has virtually passed into his possession already are there no other relations asked miss garth is there no hope from any one else there are no other relations with michael vanstone's claim said the lawyer there are no grandfathers or grandmothers of the dead child on the side of either of the parents now alive 
it was not likely there should be, considering the ages of Mr. and Mrs. Vanstone when they died. But it is a misfortune to be reasonably lamented that no other uncles or aunts survive. There are cousins alive, a son and two daughters of that elder sister of Mr. Vanstone's, who married Archdeacon Bartram, and who died, as I told you, some years since. But their interest is superseded by the interest of the nearer blood. No, Miss Garth, we must look facts as they are resolutely in the face. Mr. Vanstone's daughters are nobody's children, and the law leaves them helpless at their uncle's mercy. A cruel law, Mr. Pendrell, a cruel law in a Christian country. Cruel as it is, Miss Garth, it stands excused by a shocking peculiarity in this case. I am far from defending the law of England as it affects illegitimate offspring. On the contrary, I think it a disgrace to the nation. It visits the sins of the parents on the children. It encourages vice by depriving fathers and mothers of the strongest of all motives for making the atonement of marriage, and it claims to produce these two abominable results in the names of morality and religion. But it has no extraordinary oppression to answer for in the case of these unhappy girls. The more merciful and Christian law of other countries, which allows the marriage of the parents to make the children legitimate, has no mercy on these children. The accident of their father having been married, when he first met with their mother, has made them the outcasts of the whole social community. It has placed them out of the pale of the civil law of Europe. I tell you the hard truth. It is useless to disguise it. There is no hope if we look back at the past. There may be hope if we look on to the future." The best service which I can now render you is to shorten the period of your suspense. In less than an hour I shall be on my way back to London. Immediately on my arrival I will ascertain the speediest means of communicating with Mr. Michael Vanstone, and will let you know the result. Sad as the position of the two sisters now is, we must look at it on its best side. We must not lose hope. Hope, repeated Miss Garth hope from michael vanstone yes hope from the influence on him of time if not from the influence of mercy as i have already told you he is now an old man he cannot in the course of nature expect to live much longer if he looks back to the period when he and his brother were first at variance he must look back through thirty years surely these are softening influences which must affect any man Surely his own knowledge of the shocking circumstances under which he has become possessed of this money will plead with him if nothing else does. I will try to think as you do, Mr. Pendrell. I will try to hope for the best. Shall we be left long in suspense before the decision reaches us? I trust not. The only delay on my side will be caused by the necessity of discovering the place of Michael Vanstone's residence on the continent. I think I have the means of meeting this difficulty successfully, and the moment I reach London those means shall be tried." He took up his hat, and then returned to the table on which the father's last letter and the father's useless will were lying side by side. After a moment's consideration he placed them both in Miss Garth's hands. "'It may help you in breaking the hard truth to the orphan sisters.' he said in his quiet, self-repressed way, 
if they can see how their father refers to them in his will, if they can read his letter to me, the last he ever wrote. Let these tokens tell them that the one idea of their father's life was the idea of making atonement to his children. They may think bitterly of their birth, he said to me, at the time when I drew this useless will, but they shall never think bitterly of me. I will cross them in nothing. They shall never know a sorrow that I can spare them, or a want which I will not satisfy. He made me put those words in his will, to plead for him when the truth which he had concealed from his children in his lifetime was revealed to them after his death. No law can deprive his daughters of the legacy of his repentance and his love. I leave the will and the letter to help you. I give them both into your care. He saw how his parting kindness touched her and thoughtfully hastened the farewell. She took his hand in both her own and murmured a few broken words of gratitude. "'Trust me to do my best,' he said, and, turning away with a merciful abruptness, left her. In the broad, cheerful sunshine he had come in to reveal the fatal truth. In the broad, cheerful sunshine, that truth disclosed, he went out. End of chapter 13, First Scene Recording by Linda Lee Paquette